0: We've got a couple of texts this morning that we're going to consider together. The first one comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 23. Ephesians four seventeen through 23. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then, Perhaps you'll notice a theme here, but the second passage is Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Father, this morning we ask that you would speak to us in these moments of stillness from your word. We confess and believe that when you call your people together on the day which you have set apart, and they are gathered into the place that you have appointed, and the man whom you have called stands up to speak the word of God and does so as he should, that somehow in the midst of that transaction you enter in, and human words become charged with the power of God, and the scriptures as they are unfolded enters the hearts and minds of your people, and they begin to put us aright. They snip off the things that shouldn't be there and they rearrange the things that are out of place and they create something new where there is a desert and it needs to bloom. And so we ask, O Lord, that you would create things in our hearts that please you through the ministry of your word. It's in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen. Well, uh, we're taking this opportunity through Lent to give a kind of an overview as i've said before of a reliable pattern and method for spiritual transformation into Christ likeness with the ongoing grace-filled help of the holy spirit now i haven't decided if i'm going to continue this after lent or if i'm going to go back to ephesians but for right now we're at least doing this and and just to recap for those of you that weren't here or have short memories. And by the way, the the statistics are terrible. Uh, If you think I repeat myself too much, it's because of the statistics. Uh, By the time a week has gone by, you've forgotten about 95% of what I said, even if you liked my sermon. And if you didn't like it, it's probably closer to 100%, except that one thing that you didn't like, that'll stick out in your mind forever. But anyway, um, just to recap, we spent the last two weeks talking about self-denial, Or another way to talk about this is death to self and what I said and I want to I want to make sure that you understand this carefully this is the absolute bedrock foundation that you have to lay and be working on before you can make any further progress towards transformation into the likeness of Jesus Christ you have to get this issue somewhat nailed down first now That sounds like a taller order than perhaps it is. I'm not saying that you must be perfectly dead to self before you can make progress, but you must be walking in that pathway and you have to have gone a pretty good distance on that road. Or to put it another way, you have to have begun to develop the habit of self-denial. The habit of choosing with the help of God not to worry too much about not getting your own way, not to worry too much, and, and, and this comes to us in little everyday things, and, and um, it may be that you don't worry about it when someone speaks to you in a way that you don't like, that you consider maybe disrespectful, or when that this is the one that happened to me and it was kind of caught me up short I'm walking out of Rulies and I'm walking behind a lady and she stops in the middle of the doorway and she starts fumbling in her purse for her keys and she's taking up the whole doorway and it's like, lady, either go over here, out of the way, and get your purse out and dig for your keys, or go out to the car and dig for your keys there. But don't do it right in the middle of the doorway, for Pete's sake. And then it was like, Jesus was like, you don't have to have your own way. You'll be, you'll be silly someday, too, and forget where your keys are, and you'll stand in the middle of the doorway someday, too, and go, I wonder where my keys are. And that's okay. Just be, just not have to have my own way that in that moment. Maybe, uh, maybe your spouse buys something that you wish they wouldn't have, or you buy something that your spouse wishes that you wouldn't have, and that your spouse tells you about it, and that annoys you. This is a good chance for death to self. Maybe the person in front of you is, is driving too slow. Maybe your kid makes a choice that you wouldn't prefer, or maybe they mess up your order at the drive-thru or you get what you perceive to be unfair treatment at work. All of these small but real and irksome things are what God sends your way in his absolute providence, his absolute control over everything that comes to you. All of these things are sent your direction on purpose, and the purpose is for training and for practice so that when bigger things come along, Uh, You have some basic skills in place, and you're better able to deal then with the bigger things. Now, just making some progress in self-denial or death to self will make a profound and a noticeable difference in you because you are well on your way to realizing that God is walking with you every moment, and that he's ordering all of the details of your life according to his wisdom and his will, and that nothing happens to you that he does not take and turn into something for your good. That's Romans eight twenty eight. All things work together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes, and you start to become happy that he's doing so. You're like, you know, Lord, I ran my own life for... 40, 50, 60, 70 years, I made a complete mess of it. And you come along, and you start doing things I don't like, but I realize the things I don't like are the things that need to happen and the changes that need to be made, and son of a gun, Lord, when you start ordering my life and I start going along with it, I find out that things are pretty good with you. I find out that it's okay to let go. I find out that I can be happy in the midst of all this. And as a result of this experience, you will start to interrupt all of these different patterns of thought and feeling that lie behind your habitual sense of disturbance when you don't get what you want. You start asking yourself, why in the world am I so annoyed at the lady digging in her purse for her keys in the middle of the doorway at Ruley's? And you want to turn it into some kind of grand moral crusade, right? Well, she's being inappropriately inattentive of the well-being of other people and, other, and I'm, I'm just looking out for all of my fellow shoppers here at Ruley's who are being unnecessarily inconvenienced by this lady's rude behavior. No, you're not. You just want what you want. You're, you're just in a hurry and you want to get to your car and you don't, like somebody, you don't like somebody messing with your time. And then you start saying to yourself, well, why don't I like that? Why is, it, why is this bothering me so much? Why is it bothering me that I'm, I'm, they messed up my order at Burger King and I didn't find out until I was halfway back to the office and I had to turn around and go back. And wh- Why? I didn't have some, I wasn't starving. I didn't, I didn't have some grand thing that needed to be done. There was nobody waiting for me for a meeting. I was just irritated. Why do I have, do I have an inappropriate sense that my own time belongs to me, perhaps? I talk about my time and God, the only time I've got is the time that you give me. You put me in this body, I didn't ask to be put into it. You brought me into this world, I didn't, there wasn't a me to even be asked about it. And when it's time to go, you'll yank me out and you won't really consult me about it. And in between every moment I have is a gift from you. It's not my time, it's your time. And then you say, okay should I then live in light of the fact that all of what I thought was my time is God's time? And so you begin begin to get behind the things that irritate you. You begin to get behind the things that cause your sinful behavior and you start dealing with the issues of the heart and you begin to learn by experience that there is a fundamental issue which you have to deal with in the transformation of the human being. Now there are Two main battlegrounds where you and Satan have to duke it out in order for you and Jesus to gain mastery over yourself. And we're not going to talk about the second one for a little while, but the first one, and by far the most important one, is the part of yourself that's usually called your mind in the English Bible. Now, Romans 12, 1 and 2, one of our texts today. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind right that 's a, that's a huge, huge text that, that is one of the most important statements in the Bible that that that, the, that you are transformed by the renewing of something that in the English Bible is called your mind. Now we have to make some distinctions here that exist in the Bible but don 't really clearly exist in English and especially in modern American English and in the way we think about those words. Now, the issues here are complex, and some of them have to do with how Hebrew words from the Old Testament were translated into the Greek version of the Old Testament, which the Greek-speaking Jews in the ancient world had done when they wanted a Bible for themselves that they could understand a little bit better. Just like today, an American Jew, the first language would be English, and they would want a Bible in an Old Testament in good English to enable them to understand. Well, it was the same way in the ancient world. There were Jews from all around the ancient world who grew up speaking Greek. They didn't speak Hebrew. They they learned Hebrew, but the languages were different enough and the mentalities behind the languages were different enough that they were like, it would be really good if we just had a Bible in Greek. And so they put one together in about 285 AD, or BC rather, before Christ, and it was called the Septuagint. And that is the Old Testament that the Apostle Paul used that was the bible he read so so we had these words that were hebrew and they're put into greek and sometimes they're given new force or new weight or added meaning by being translated into greek a a good example of that is the word peace in in hebrew it's shalom and we've talked about what shalom is it's this total sense of well-being well the greeks didn't have that concept their word for peace was Irene, where we get our name Irene, and for the Greeks, peace was that brief interlude between one war and the next, because we're always going to have another war, and that was the Greek mentality. It's like, what are you doing right now? Well, we're not fighting. That's peace, and, and so that was a very incomplete understanding of the, of the Hebrew, but that's the best that they could do, so they import this word shalom, and they, and they give it, all, the new Greek word, all kinds of extra meanings that it didn't have before. There's some of that going on here. And uh, then there's also the issue of how these words were used by the non-Christian ancient Greeks, particularly the philosophers like Plato and Aristotle, because they had things to say on these things, and they had slightly different concepts. And finally, there's the issue of the New Testament writers' own grasp of the Greek language. Paul, for instance, had a very good grasp of the Greek language, and he was well-read in the ancient pagan sources. And so when you read Paul, and especially some of the most polished letters of Paul, like Ephesians or something like that, you, you get very good Greek. You, you see somebody who's very educated. But when you turn to the Gospel of Mark, for instance, or the books of First and Second Peter, you see writings by guys who both struggled with a limited vocabulary and a limited education. They were both native speakers of a language called Aramaic, which is kind of a cousin of Hebrew. And so their Hebraic ways of thinking and their Hebraic ways of seeing the world color the choices of their Greek words. So I'm gonna have to, I say all that to say this, I'm gonna have to oversimplify things a little bit. And I don't think I'll oversimplify them so much that it's misleading, but if I I give you a bunch of definitions and you start using the words in that way and somebody comes along, or you read an article and it says no and it disagrees with me, don't get too stirred up about it. it it's just that there's a lot of nuance here and we, this isn't a place to do nuance, okay? So let's start with one word in English, we're, the word mind. We're accustomed to thinking of the mind as the seat of reason. And then we're accustomed to thinking of the heart as the seat of the emotions. That's our understanding, heart and mind, emotions and reason. That's what we think of. But the Bible describes our invisible parts differently. And the Bible assigns the names of different organs to those invisible parts. So for instance, the seat of the emotions is described using two terms. The most common one is splankna. Everybody say splankna. Splankna. Say it out loud. Come on. Splankna. Okay. And that's the general term for your innards right in this area here. And so, for instance, in the parable uh, of the Good Samaritan, when when the Samaritan saw the man who'd been beaten to a pulp lying by the side of the road, he had compassion or pity on him. In the Greek, it's he had splankna on him. Now, in the King James Version, they actually translate that word as bowels, bowels, okay? Um, we, we get our English word spleen from the word "splankna. all right? The King James translates it as bowels. So, for instance, if you look at a, at a verse in the English Bible, in a newer English Bible that, that deals with this word, for instance, in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 11 through 12, we read in the ESV, Paul's writing, and he says, for we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. And that word affections is splankna. You're, you're restricted in your affections. The King James Version reads very unhelpfully, you are not straightened in us, but ye are straightened in your bowels, which makes it sound like everybody in Corinth needed a laxative, Right? So, and it sounds, I mean, I have you in my heart, sounds so much better than I have you in my large intestine, right? It just does. Sometimes the seed of emotions is specifically located in the kidneys, which is where the Old Testament locates them. And in Revelation 2.23, we see that the New Testament also does in certain places, and the kidneys are the nephros, where we get our word nephrologist or nephrology. So when the Bible talks about the heart, it is not referring to the seat of the emotions. This is super, super important. When you read the word heart in the Bible, don't think Valentine's Day. Don't think love. You're going to have to think something different. Think about your, when, when when you read the word heart in your Bible, you're not thinking about your emotions. Similarly, when the Bible talks about the mind, it's not referring to your intellectual center. It's not referring to the place of rational thought. When the Bible wants to talk about the part of you that does algebra or that tries to figure out where you are on the map, it either uses the word logos or the word gnome, the part of you that reasons or the part of you that knows things. That's not your mind, not in the Bible. So when you hear the words heart and mind in a biblical context, I want you to try very, very hard not to think thoughts and feelings. We're not talking about the thoughts and feelings as we normally understand them. So what are you supposed to think about? Well, in the Bible, the heart is the absolute center of yourself, in the Bible, your heart is the place that originates you, like a fountain or a spring bubbles forth with water. Your heart is the center of you. And that's actually the imagery that the Bible uses in Proverbs 4.23, isn't it? Of a spring of water burbling up. The, 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 the writer of the Proverbs says, above all else, guard your heart, for from it flow the springs of of life. So you live in the biblical understanding from the heart. Now we hear that and we think we live for our emotions. No, 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 no. The heart is the center of you. It's where you originate things. The heart is the place where you're most like God. Your heart is the image of God. It's the central focus of the image of God. The heart is the place from which all of your creative actions spring forth, whether we're talking about a poem or making a birdhouse or creating a business. And the heart is also referred to as the spirit because it's not really a bodily part. So it's invisible. And it's also, as I said, the part that's most like God and God is spirit, So spirit and heart are the same thing. Now, just as an example, my wife and I built a house once in Sturgis, South Dakota. And when I say my wife and I, I should really say my wife. Because I was mostly just along for the ride. I had input. And, of course, she listened to my concerns and my wishes. But it was really her project. Because it sprang from her heart. It was an expression of her spirit. And she loved every minute of it, from the planning stage on the computer to, to, the, to the, the contractor out there swinging hammers and everything else, and, and she just loved every minute. I can remember watching her for months with the little plan on the computer, moving the bathroom wall, two feet, two feet. What'd you like better, two feet, two feet? I don't know, honey. Well, if I do this, it's bigger, yes, and it costs more, bad. Two feet, can we live with this i don 't know it 's five feet and i, I don 't know you know and she back and forth for months she did that may, and she wasn 't bored I, I would have gone somewhere else and watched paint dry, but she wasn 't bored she she enjoyed it, and she did a really good job because it was a beautiful home when when we were done the, the flip, so, so the heart is that which springs forth with creativity. the flip side of that is the the urge um, to bring things that are outside, near. And, and so there's this, this idea of desire. The spirit, or the heart, takes what's outside and desires to make it live on the inside or near, which is love. The heart desires things that are in the inside to be manifest in reality, and it, des- it desires things that are outside to be brought in, near and into appropriate relationship. So so that happens when you love someone or something. You bring them near, and that's the heart. And, And that desire both to bring something from inside of you into being outside of you, and that desire to bring something outside of you near and incorporate it into your own being in your own life are both expressions of your will. And that's the third term that the Bible uses for this same invisible part of you. So, and so these expressions from the scripture, the heart, the spirit, the will, they all really describe the same thing. And we call it the heart to refer to its central position in our being. We call it our spirit because it's the part that's most like God and he's spirit and it's also invisible and it's non-physical. It will continue churning along even after your body dies. And, uh, and we call it the will because it's that which originates and creates and shapes reality okay and so so for instance with my wife and her her house thing if she can fall in love with an existing house and and bring it near that's okay too and so we watch shows all the time about people buying houses what are they doing now they're looking at a house is it a big house yes it's a big house is it too much house might be too much house is it in a great neighborhood might be the wrong neighborhood Let's go look at another house. And they have whole shows about people for a half an hour. They just look at houses and then they go, I'm going to buy that house. And everybody goes, oh, I don't get it. I sit there and I watch it, but I don't get it. But that's okay. That's okay. That's not where my heart is. Now, if you want to show me old British motorcycles being restored, I'm all over that. That'd be all right, you know. It's just because we're different. It's what's in our hearts is different. And, and, and the best of all possible worlds would be a house out there that she fell in love with, that she brought near, and then had to gut and completely redo so that some inside came out, and then we could have this wonderful project together where we make a new house out of an old house. But that's the heart. Now, I want you to notice that the feelings or the emotions are tangentially related to the expressions of the spirit, the will, the heart, but those feelings and emotions aren't the primary thing being produced. So in other words, we have this desire, and then we have some feelings after the desire is presented to our minds. We we have some feelings about it. Maybe they're happy, maybe they're sad, maybe they're anxious or whatever, but the, the feelings are second order things, okay? So... So the best place, as I said, to think, the best way perhaps to think about the heart is to think about it as the place where we are most like God. It's the place of our unbodily personal power. And the part of us that is most like God is not our bodies. It's the creative center of our being where we originate the things that shape the world with our yes or our no. It's also the place where we were designed to commune with God. God. The place where you commune with God is in your heart. Now, the heart is closely bound up with another invisible part of you, and they're connected so closely that sometimes the functions of the one get attributed to the other in the Bible. For instance, now we hear in the Bible sometimes talking about the thoughts of our hearts. Wait, the heart doesn't think, the mind is that which thinks. Well, these two parts are close together, and, and I've just let the cat out of the bag there. The second invisible part of you is in the English Bible called the mind. Now, I'm going to have to teach you some Greek here, besides splankna. That one's just fun to say, because it kind of sounds like what it is. I mean, you, you, you think about like an action movie where the alien bursts out of the guy's abdomen. It just kind of sounds like splankna, you know, just blah, well. Okay, so the, the, the other Greek word I want you to learn is the word noose. N-O-U-S, noose. Everybody say noose. Noose. Now, like I said before, the noose is not what you use to do algebra. It's not what you use to figure out how much to tip the waitress. The noose is the part of you that was designed by God to apprehend God to understand as much about God and about what he's doing as a human being can possibly understand, and then to arrange your own life in harmony with God. So when Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, that his desire is for the Ephesians to have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that's another way of talking about the noose, the mind. The noose is the eyes of the heart. It's the eyes of the soul. When Jesus talks about people who have physical eyes and are examining the things that are happening in the world, but he says you have eyes, but you don't see. You have ears, but you don't hear. He's talking about the fact that they're noose Isn't working properly. In other words, the facts are plainly set forth in front of you, but you don't understand the spiritual significance of those facts, and you don't understand what they proclaim about God. And it wasn't because their IQs were too low, there was another problem. The very crux of the human problem is that the noose, the mind of the fallen human being, has become darkened, it doesn't operate properly. It's not capable of orienting the life around God properly. So when we look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17, which was our other text this morning, we find that unbelievers walk, that is, they follow a determined habitual course of action through their lives. They walk in vanity or futility or emptiness of mind, of the noose. And the word that's translated as vanity or futility refers to a process that does not bring about the desired result. And so you think about the natural man lost and apart from God without hope and without God in the world. The natural man diligently, indeed almost manically, pursues a course of action that does not end up giving him what he is seeking. And yet he doesn't quit. And when he, when, he, when he plays that out to the end, he goes, well, that didn't work. Maybe I'll throw myself in a different direction for five or ten years and see what that does. Or even worse, they never notice that the course of action isn't producing the desired result. Like I, I, knew this, I knew this person, this woman, who was a compulsive shopper. And she would just go and she would run up her credit cards And she would buy all kinds of crazy things. She had shoes that she'd never worn and all these other things. And and she did that to make herself happy. And she was one of the most miserable people I think I've ever known. It, It never made her happy. But she kept shopping anyway because she didn't know what else to do. She never stopped and said, this is a bad strategy for being happy. All I've got is a lot of shoes I don't wear and a really high credit card bill. She never did that. She just kept buying stuff, hoping somehow that it would reach a level where she was happy. That's because her noose was darkened. They're also uh, darkened in their noose in that they're alienated from the life of God because of their futile, darkened minds and their blinded or hardened hearts. And those blinded or hardened hearts cut them off from the light and the life of God. It disconnects them from God's life, and from God's power, and it keeps them from seeing what they need to do to get reconnected. And we find this sort of language in Romans chapter 1, don't we? Those are called to worship. For instance, in Romans 1.28, says, Paul says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind, noose, to do things which are not fitting. Now, let me reemphasize, the darkened or the blinded mind or noose is not an intellectual problem. It is a moral and a spiritual problem. Albert Einstein had a darkened noose, had a darkened mind, in that he did not submit himself to God through Jesus Christ, and yet he was intellectually brilliant, one of the most brilliant people probably that ever lived. And so you see, these are two different things. Now, there's something else that I need to add here, and that's this. The way that Satan runs this world, mainly, is by exploiting the debased or the fallen mind or noose. He does it with ideas. We're going to talk a little bit about that because there's another Greek word behind that. We'll talk about that. A little bit later but Satan precipitated the fall back in Genesis 3 by introducing an idea a false idea but a very powerful false idea and he introduced it into Eve's noose into her mind and somehow it lodged there and it changed how she looked at God and how she looked at the world and how she even looked at her husband And it lodged there in her mind, it put its roots and tentacles down into her heart, and out of that change of mind and change of heart, sin came into the world. And sin shredded God's good world. And all of us have been living with the consequences of that ever since, but we've also been participants in that same process, where ideas come in that are from the devil, and they're wrong, but they have a spiritual power attached to them and they lodge in our minds, and they distort how we see things. And then we take action based on our distorted understanding of God and the world and it produces wickedness. And so you see, I think, what has to happen for you to begin to be restored. If you're going to be restored you have to after you've decided to lay down yourself and quit trying to be your own God the very next step then is for the renewing the transformation the change of your noose of your mind The whole problem is you were brought into this world and then brought up in an environment full of bad ideas, powerful spiritual ideas, many of which you're not even aware that you hold. They're like the glasses on your nose. You look through them all day and you hardly notice that they're there and they run your life and they produce all kinds of wickedness and bad effects and you don't know why things keep going like they go and it's because your mind has been darkened. Now, when you come to Jesus Christ, he lifts a little bit of that darkness. Otherwise, you'd never come to Jesus. But there's a lot more left to do. And you need to be then transformed by the renewing of your noose. And as I said, when you were born again, God began that process. The renewal of your mind basically consists of God, the Holy Spirit, helping you rethink your life and your worldview in light of God and in light of the Bible. It means that you begin to live as though God is actually there and all the things in the Bible that that are said about God are actually true. And and so you, you go, okay, I can now begin to live as though God is there and what God says about himself in the word of God is true and I can rely upon it and I can make decisions around that and I can expect better outcomes than what I've been doing before. So for instance, let's just take a small example. Let's say your life is marked by anxiety. The world has its prescriptions for anxiety, doesn't it? They're everywhere. I I checked in a recent issue of a, a, a magazine called Self. There's an interesting little juxtaposition there. There's a magazine all about yourself. You say, what's wrong with the world? Well, this, the world is a place where you can have a magazine that continues to sell uh, called Self, okay? And it's all about taking care of yourself. And, and the prescriptions for anxiety that came through multiple issues of self are everything from prescription medication to meditation to cutting toxic People out of your life, which ends up being everybody that just doesn't agree with you, eventually, and and things like self-care, which includes exercise and maybe yoga, maybe you get a massage or have a spa day, and and you maybe you get some kind of pseudo-healthy smoothie, and of course there are other ways that people have dealt with anxiety that are are less uh, considered less proper. For instance, alcohol, tobacco overeating, the use of illegal drugs. Those are all done as a means of stress management. And from time to time, they're even frowned on by the elites, but it doesn't matter. I actually had a hospice patient that was dying of COPD and uh, she got COPD because she smoked uh, like two packs a day um, as a response to anxiety. She'd been sexually assaulted when she was younger and, and it had made her terribly fearful. And she would literally sit in the one place in her house where she could have a 360-degree view of the property around her and smoke. And she said, even though she's dying, she said, I I wouldn't give it up. They they helped me cope. She she didn't give it up until she was dying, basically. And even then, she wanted one. She just couldn't figure out how to do it with the oxygen. And and so that was her method for dealing with anxiety. That's the world's prescriptions. What does the Bible say about anxiety? And what does the Bible say about the cure for anxiety? Well, for instance, it says in Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed or fixed on you because he trusts in you. You will keep in perfect peace the one whose mind is fixed on you, God, because he trusts in you. Or Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So the world says, go have a mani-pedi and a smoothie. And God says, fix your mind upon me. God says, come to me in prayer, deep prayer with thanksgiving and make your needs known to me and in exchange I will grant you peace that is beyond your deepest understanding you see the world manages the symptoms the effects of anxiety on the body the other erases the occasion for anxiety Am I saying that massages and smoothies are evil? No, they are expensive, but they are not evil. I'm saying that they're inadequate. I'm saying that if you only have a limited amount of free time and free energy to formulate and execute a coherent response to anxiety in your life, then you should skip the massage and seek out someone who can teach you how to fix your mind on God or who can teach you how to pray properly. I'm also saying that the people who hear this advice and who ignore it and continue down the road of massages and smoothies as their chosen means of stress management are showing exactly the futile and darkened mind that Paul mentions in Ephesians 4, in action. It's like, the smoothie won't make you calm. I know, but it's a lot of work to... To learn how to trust the Lord and it's only eight bucks for the smoothie and about 60 for the massage and and that's just that's all I can manage right now okay and when you're done and your wallet is $68 lighter you will still have anxiety will you come and talk to me then maybe but probably not I'll probably just go have a mani-pedi instead no then you are pursuing a course of futility and that's the world And the reason that people pursue those courses of futility is because they don't actually want to be close to God sometimes. Because he's the big interferer and he'll demand that they change things for their better, but they won't think of it that way. And so they'll say, I'm just gonna avoid this God as long as possible. Well, you can avoid him your whole life if you prefer. Now I'm gonna wrap this up for today, but I I want you to know that we've only just scratched the surface here. To be transformed into Christ-likeness is a process where your whole self is reoriented away from the notion that you are alone in this world and that you have to look out for yourself, and it's reoriented towards the notion that you can safely place yourself in the care of God and then live a life without any lack whatsoever, where you don't have to do what Jesus tells you not to do in order to, to get by. And and what you do have to do is you have to do what Jesus tells you to do. And then, he, and then he brings, by that process of obedience, brings you around by experience so that you understand this is how life with God is supposed to go. It's a, he's inviting you on an adventure. He's inviting you on, I mean, people pay money to go on these crazy adventures where they go you know, zip lining in Costa Rica, or they go watch the icebergs, uh, CAV in Alaska, and, and all these other kinds of things. People pay money for this. You're invited on an eternal adventure with your king and savior, Jesus Christ. And he wants to take you into places that look for all the world like they're awfully dangerous. And the whole time he's holding you up in his right hand and caring for you. He wants you to put you in a place He loves to do this he loves to put you in places where there is no possible human solution and to have you go it doesn't matter God is still God and then to bring about some kind of resolution that everybody goes whoa how in the world that's an amazing coincidence you go it's not a coincidence it's God it's absolutely God he loves to do that he loves to put you in a position where you're like if I had any sense right now, I'd be terrified and go, you have sense, don't be terrified. It's your senselessness that would terrify you. Because now, if you're terrified, you're living like I'm not here. And I don't care. And both of those things are wrong. And he puts you in that place and the whole world looks and goes, whoa. And then you walk out the other side. It's like Rich Mullins sang in one of his songs, you meet the Lord in the furnace, long time before you meet him in the sky. But what did they lose in the furnace? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what did they lose? They lost the ropes that were tying their hands. And they walked out without even the smell of smoke on their clothes, and God was glorified. That's how he wants you to live. That's how he invites you to live, with him. But it has to start with rethinking your thinking. It has to start with the renewal of your mind. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, for you are my rock and my redeemer. Amen.